Hello, good morning. Okay, if you want to find uh, in your Bible, Exodus chapter 19, if you don't have it, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment. Just to underline what Joe was just saying about prayer, um, sometimes some people ask me the question, what kind of church are we? And I'll talk through a few distinctives, a few things that are important to us. And one thing I'll often say is that we're a church that's charismatic, um, which that word for some people will be a delight and other people it will be scary. Other people won't know what that means. But one thing what it means, which is really important, is that we pray. And we believe that we have a God of power who is able to break through in situations mightily. And it means that we believe that everything we do in this city, all the mission that God's called us to, the kind of the fuel of that is that we come and we pray again and again and again. And the story of this church, I could tell you over the, uh, a much longer period than this, but the story of this church right from the very beginning is that four years ago, even before we moved five years ago, however long ago it was, we started to pray and we've carried on to pray. And the moments in the story of this church where we've suddenly leaped forward or things have happened, or even sometimes just the slow, little by little progression of God's work is, is because we pray. Um, and we've called the, the basement where we pray the boiler room because of two reasons. One, there's a boiler there, <laughs> which heats the whole building. And two, because when we gather to pray, it's supposed to be like the boiler room of the church. It's where the power comes from. Not so, not, I don't mean that our prayer meetings are these somehow these kind of magical, kind of mystical moments, but our prayer meetings are when we come to God and we believe that the power is with him. There's nothing magical or special about our prayers or our praying, but with God there's wonderful power. So if we want to see things change, if we want to see God move in our city, if we want to see our friends and our neighbors, our family come to know Jesus, if we want in our own heart to become more like him, then we must, must pray. So please come and join us on Wednesday evening to pray. Um, and I know for some of you that could be a bit of a daunting experience because maybe what I've described might sound a bit wacky to you or just a bit unusual, a bit crazy, then please just come and talk to me, talk to Joe, ask us questions, what it's like. Come along and experience it, and if you think it's wacky and crazy, then that's fine, no problem at all. It won't be, trust me. Sometimes, actually, prayer is often quite hard work. It's about diligently seeking him. I'm going to stop talking now, because I could go on all morning talking about prayer. But come along, okay? Right, here we go. Exodus 19. Um, before I get into that, let me just say as well, this is related to the message, don't worry, but the, where we, the moment we're hitting in this story has been kind of a rapid journey. Uh, so we, we did the first kind of 14, 15 uh, chapters of Exodus where we see the people of God being drawn out of slavery into, in, in Egypt and they're brought out by the power of God. We see them coming through the Red Sea, God's deliverance, God's rescue of his People And the story has been moving quite rapidly since then. We saw them in the wilderness. 
uh, chapter 16 and, and start of chapter 17 where God provides for them when they're thirsty and hungry. In the next chapter, chapter 17, we see them attacked by Amalek and God defeats Amalek in that moment. Uh, and, and then in chapter 18 where Tim was speaking from last week, we see them meeting Joseph, um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and then the story is, is still moving on. And this week where we find them is they come to Mount Sinai. Uh, and although the story's been moving quite rapidly since then, now we kind of slow down. Uh, and where they, they get to now at Sinai, they're, they're basically here for the next 11 months or the next 57 chapters of your Bible. So from here all the way through to, I think, Numbers 10 is all situated here at the bottom of a mountain which is going to be a bit strange, but we'll explain it as we go through. And we're not going to do all 57 chapters this morning. Just going to do one. So let me read to you from Exodus chapter 19. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you should be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. They washed their garments he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. 
the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and coming up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let me pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we want our hearts to be open for you to speak. And when we open up the Bible, your word to us, uh, we believe that it has power to change our lives, has power to bring uh, conviction and repentance and hope and joy. And we pray it would speak richly to us. We pray you would be at work amongst us, we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite mountains uh, in England is in a place called the Lake District. I'm from England, by the way, if you don't know. The Lake District is a part in the northwest of England. There's a beautiful mountain I love called Helvellyn, which uh, I'm just going to give you a picture just for the Dutch here who've never seen a mountain before. (laughs) Looks a bit like this. That's Helvellyn. That's not me. That's some. I don't know who that is. I just found this image on Google, I didn't take this picture. But uh, on Helvellyn, you've got this, I'm not sure how well you can see it, but you've got this ridge called Striding Edge that you walk down. And although it's not a huge mountain compared to the Himalayas or the Alps or anything like that, walking along that ridge is pretty terrifying because you only need to stumble off that path and there's a bit of a slide all the way down the edge. And actually, um, about 200 years ago, an artist called Charles Goth, was walking along there and he fell. Uh, and they found his body three months later. And all that was left was a skeleton and his dog. And his dog was still alive, sitting next to his skeleton, guarding it. And uh, to this day, no one knows whether the dog just stayed there faithfully guarding his owner or whether the dog ate him. They don't, they don't know. Um, I suspect that the dog ate him. So there's a lesson for all you dog owners out there. If you ever fall down a mountain with your dog, beware, because it will eat you, because dogs, dogs should be uh, treated with caution. That's your lesson for this morning, and if you're wondering how I'm going to make that link with this message, I won't, it's got nothing to do with it whatsoever. But mountains, they come to this mountain here in Exodus 19, uh, and all through the Bible, mountains are referenced all the time. And part of the reason I love this mountain, Helvellyn, is that you, and partly it's terrifying walking along that ridge, but then when you get to the top, it's, it's awe-inspiring. You get this incredible view. And there's something about mountains that does something in our, in our souls. They're dramatic, they fill us with awe, they're dangerous, they're powerful, they're kind of solid and permanent. You know, you can't move a mountain they tell us something about the nature, the character of God. So the Bible references them again and again to speak to us. 
to, about him, about his everlasting permanence, his steadfast righteousness, his power, his majesty, his might. They speak to us over and over again. And it's not an accident that they've come here to this point where, as we'll see in the later chapters, God is going to come and bring his law, the Ten Commandments we see in Exodus 20, and then that gets fleshed out more in the following chapters. It's no coincidence that they've come to a mountain for this to happen, that God's led them out of Egypt, and although he's leading them to the promised land, actually just as important on their journeys, he's led them here to this mountain where God's going to speak to them, where God's going to come, and in this chapter we see God comes to meet with them. He's brought them here to this mountain for a purpose. And this story that we're going to look at today is built around kind of three sections of the story where Moses ascends up the mountain and then descends down, and that happens three times. So poor old Moses had to do quite a lot of hiking in this story going up and down the mountain, and I don't know whether he had a dog with him. I presume probably not, because he didn't get eaten. And the first ascent up the mountain, we see that uh, what happens is Moses goes up the mountain, uh, and then what we have here is kind of an introduction to what is going to follow over the coming chapters is that God comes and speaks to him and reminds him of three things. First of all, he reminds him of what God has done. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, that's, God comes and reminds them of the story so far, that God's rescued them. I mean, he uses very poetic language like an eagle's come and just snatched them down and grabbed them and pulled them out to bring them to himself. And he's led them out and brought them to him. It says in Hosea that when Israel was a child, he's talking about this people here, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It goes on a few verses later, it says, God says, it was I who taught them how to walk this is, this is, you see this picture here of God coming like this eagle and rescuing this infant, this child, and pulling them out. And that's what's happened with us. That's what the Lord has done for us. He's come down to rescue us and pull us out. He's taught us how to walk. If you've ever had a, a toddler, just at the early stage of beginning to take a few steps, and it's just kind of walk, walk, smack, walk, walk, smack, you know, just fall on the floor all the time. And you have to kind of stand over them and they just, they kind of grab onto your fingers and, then they, and you can then just support them as they toddle along. And if you look at their face, they've got this face of just sheer joy and delight because they are conquering the world. I could walk. Who knows what else is going to happen next? You know, they're just ready to take on everything. But you know as the parent that if you just let go, smack, they're going to go straight down again. But for them, it's like, yes, here we go. And that's exactly what we're like with God, right? All the time, he's led us out. All the time, even now, he's leading us. We're just like toddlers, gripping on, not realizing that he, if he was just to let go, slam, we'd fall down. But all the time, he's gently leading us, guiding us. So God set, comes and reminds them what he's done. And then he comes and says to them what he 
requires. He says, now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Because he's called them out of Egypt for a purpose, for a reason. And he wants to shape them into his people. He's drawn them out to draw them in to you know, his presence, but also a lifestyle, a way of living, a purpose, a way of being alive. He's called them out and into this relationship, this covenant relationship with him. And he tells them that you need to obey, you need to keep my covenant. So he tells them what he requires, and then he makes a few, a few promises says here, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I love this verse because we see God says, the whole earth is mine, all of it. And yet he's called out this one people as his treasured possession, as his thing that's special, his royal important thing that he's going to hold on to. Not because there's any particular worth or value in them, because as we've seen in this story, as we'll continue to see in this story, these guys are, are muppets. You know, they make mistake after mistake. They fail again and again. But God says, no, these are my treasured possession. It's, it's, they're important to God. They're special to him. A few weeks ago, I was, uh, had the privilege of officiating a, a wedding in the church, um, and uh, the, the groom asked me to, to look after the rings. So in that moment where they exchange rings, I could just pull them out, and there you go, there are the rings. But they're in this big box. So I, I tried to put the box in the kind of pocket of my jacket, and it wouldn't fit. So I had to take them out and got rid of the box and just slip them in my pocket. And I went to the groom and said, oh, you know, I tried to, you know, the box is too big, so I just put them in my pocket. And I just tried to make a joke of it. And I think I said something like, well, I hope I don't have a hole in my pocket. And his face, his face was like, what have you just said? What have you just, I wish, you know, like on a, on a Mac, it's like control shift four or whatever. And then you can make like a little screenshot window thing. I just wanted to get his face like, because just the look of utter disbelief. Like those, those are the rings, like they're important. You can't just make a joke about losing them. And fortunately, I didn't have a hole in my pocket, but after seeing his face, then the whole way through the service, I was constantly just checking, making sure they're there in my pocket, because I knew that they were important. They're incredibly important. And all of us have things, possessions in our life, sometimes things that actually aren't really worth anything but become incredibly important to us. You know, like that item of clothing that is worn and it's just a bit, it's just, it's, you know, no one's going to buy it in a shop. <laughs> You've had it for years, but you just, you just love it. You just, you're not going to let go of it because it's important to you. It's just for some reason that you can't quite understand. Maybe there's some kind of memory attached to it, but it's become treasure to you. And that's how God treats us. There's not necessarily anything about us that's, impressive or really that important, but God treats us as his treasure, as his possession, and as this kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We're called to be set apart, to be a, like a holy people. 
And that's what happens in this story is that Moses uh, then comes back down the mountain and says to the he repeats these words to the people and um, and they say this. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, which is a, a kind of maybe a slightly premature answer. They're like, yes, whatever, we'll go, whatever God wants, we're going to do it, yes. And they kind of get maybe a little bit overexcited here. Um, and as we, over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack a little bit about what God requires of them, this obedience that he calls them to, the, the law of God. And, for, and often, if you're a believer in Jesus here, what can happen is, is we can kind of think in our heads, well, that's a bad thing. You know, we've read the New Testament now, and we, we believe in a God of grace. So the law, we'll just, we'll just forget that. You know, we'll just, we'll just skip over Sinai. We just, we just want to get to the end of Exodus, you know, where they get into the, into the promised land, which doesn't actually happen at the end of Exodus, but we want to get to the end of the story, where all the good stuff is. And this bit about law and commandments, yeah. That's, that's the, the, the grotty bit, the bit that doesn't really matter anymore. Well, well it does matter because God gives them a, the law for a reason, and he gives it to them because he wants to protect them. He wants to bless them. He wants to do something among these people. He wants to give them a standard to live by, a way to follow him. And it's important that we see the, the order of how this happens here, that it follows, it doesn't precede the covenant that God's spoken. So first of all, God says, this is what I have done. I've rescued you, I've delivered you. Now, these are some things to do. It's not the other way around. It's not, here are some things to do so that I will rescue you. It's completely the other way around. And we need to hear that, we need to remember that, that this, the law, it doesn't save us, didn't save them, but what it does do is it, shows us that we've needed a savior, that we can't meet the standard, that we need someone who's gonna rescue us, who will deliver us. So God comes and speaks to them and tells them that it's time to, it's time to get ready. It's time to get ready. He, he, there's all these words here like consecrate and there's these instructions about what they're supposed to do. God wants to come and meet with them and he's saying to them, now's the time to get ready, to get ready. And this is the bit that may, to modern ears, sound a bit unusual. You know, he tells them to not touch the mountain. He tells them to not have sex with their wives. He tells them they need to go and wash their clothes. We're like, what is going on here? This is just a bit weird. Even some of the language that we've already heard of, you know, God saying that we need to obey his voice even what I've just said about the law might sound a bit oppressive to you, a bit, a bit kind of Old Testament, right? A bit kind of angry God. And it may be if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that might just kind of confirm your suspicions of what God's like. You know, you come into a building like this and maybe you think, well, um, if God does exist, then he's just this distant figure who I, I need to placate, you know? I've just got to do some things, live a, a way of life to somehow make sure that he doesn't, he doesn't kind of strike me down. And God's just this angry God full of wrath and vengeance who just wants to make your life a misery. Maybe that's what you think about, about God. Um, 
you know, maybe that's the sort of God that you, maybe that's the God that you don't believe in. Maybe that's why you don't believe in God, because you've heard that about him. Well, we don't believe in that God either. We don't believe in a God who's just out to cause harm and to break people and just to somehow make us live lives where we've just got to do whatever we can to try and keep God happy. That's not the God that we believe in at all. But it's important that we understand what's going on here because it gets stranger. We see like in, in the verse 16, I think it is, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, a loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. We see then there's like fire. It describes the mountain as like smoke coming out of the fire, like a kiln, like a volcano, basically. It talks about the mountain trembling, like there was an earthquake on the mountain. And then it goes on and says in verse 19, oh no, that's not verse 19. No, was that verse 19? I don't have verse 19 there. It says in verse 19 that the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Thunder, that's how God speaks to him. And then it does say in verse 21 here, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And you think, okay, well, well this preacher guy just said that he's not, God's not you know, this kind of angry God who wants to punish us, but what is going on here? Who is this God? Is this just a, a myth? Is this just a nice story to kind of evoke some sort of image or picture? Did this actually happen? And what on earth is going on? This mountain kind of turned into this weird kind of volcano thing. Is it earthquake? Is thunder and lightning? What is happening here? And to modern ears, to our kind of Western eyes, Maybe you don't really like this because you want, you want God to be kind of comfortable. You want, you want God to be, to be safe, to be just easy and nice. There's a bit of a trend in our society today where people talk about safe spaces, where people who are, who are maybe you're in a workplace or in a university and you're uh, something about the environment leaves you anxious or fearful that people should create safe spaces for people to go. Uh, there's, a, there's a university in England where they've, they've banned clapping because uh, it causes people to be anxious. So at the end of lectures, they're not allowed to clap anymore. They have to wave their hands like this. <laughs> it's true. Um, and it would be easy to mock that, but you know, for many people, fear and anxiety is is a real issue, but the answer isn't just to kind of sugarcoat life. It's like it's when, when, you, when you have a baby, you can, you can kind of baby-proof your house. You know, put, make sure there's no sharp edges, there's no kind of blunt instruments, just make, make everything just like this kind of soft, bouncy paradise, so they're never gonna get hurt, ever. But children find a way of somehow getting themselves hurt, because it's just what they do, right? This is part of their job description. And we can try and sugarcoat our lives or just try and protect other people. Or often, actually, what we do as believers, as Christians, as churches, we try and sugarcoat God. We just try and make him this nice, safe, cuddly character in the sky. 
big kind of papa bear that we can go and have a, a cuddle with. And this idea that somehow God might be holy, that he might have power, is sometimes a bit scary to us. And God is, the Bible talks about him being a, God, a, a place of refuge and a place of comfort. But he's also God of fearsome power. He's a holy God. If, if you've ever been outside in a thunderstorm, now I like thunderstorms, but I like them when I'm inside with a mug of hot chocolate looking out the window. That, that's where you should experience a thunderstorm. If you're outside in them, it's terrifying. If you're suddenly there and, and, and you hear that, you see the flash of lightning and the instant crack of thunder over your head, you think, I should not be here. And you find cover. And that, uh, that's what it would have felt like for these people in this story. They're just underneath a thunderstorm. The most terrifying thunderstorm you could ever imagine. And that's sometimes what it's like to in, encounter God, because he's a holy God. And we can't approach him with impunity. I mean, we can't approach him without our sin being dealt with. Because God hates sin. He hates it. And you might think, well, hold on a second. You know, why? <laughs> He's God. Surely God can just sort of turn a blind eye. No, why, 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 does, why does God hate sin? Why do we have to be holy? Why do we have to live holy lives? What's, what's that about? Surely God, you know, he can just kind of sort of just turn a blind eye. I can just get on with it. And probably what you really mean is that you want God just to ignore the things in your life that you don't like. Just to turn a blind eye to some things in your life that you're uncomfortable about. But the things in someone else's life, you definitely want God to deal with those things. The things you hear about on the news, the things that you read about that terrify you, that make you angry, in those moments you want God to be the judge when it's about other people, but not when it's about yourself. And if that's how you think, then you've kind of just, you just created your own religion with your own set of laws. That those things that those people do are wrong, but these things that I do, they're okay. And you suddenly set yourself as the judge. You're in charge of your own special religion, which doesn't look anything like Christianity. We want God to be holy. We need God to be holy. You know, if you, if you go to the, uh, the, the Binnenhof in Den Haag, the, the, the Houses of Parliament here in the Netherlands, you can't just walk in. Actually, it's surprisingly open. It's a bit worrying if you go there. They kind of just let you wander around. You think, guys, this is kind of quite important. But you can't get into the really important bits. You know, if you go to the White House in Washington or if you go to the Houses of Parliament in London, you can't just walk in. You, can't, you need, the, you need the, the right credentials. You need the right ID. You need the right access. And we would just... We, our... To come to God, you, you can't just wander in. You, you need special permission. You need the access to be granted. You need your sins to be dealt with to come before a holy God. If that's not a popular thing to say, well then, I don't really care. Because you need to hear it. There are issues in your life which need to be 
dealt with, that you need forgiveness for, that you need to repent of. Because in the age we live in, we, we shouldn't talk about holiness less and less. We need to talk about it more and more. Because we live in a, in a city which is so many ways beautiful, but in so many ways tragically broken. Because people don't know what's right and what's wrong. People don't know what's good and what's bad. And part of the, part of the anxiety that you might be struggling from is that you don't really know what's right and what's wrong how you should be living. You don't really know who you are. Because the idea that you should somehow obey God and follow him just seems, seems so ancient and so old to you. But yet, who are you going to obey instead? Who are you going to follow instead? Yourself? You know, how's that working out? In the age that we live in, more and more, we need to know that God is holy and if, if we want to come to him, we should approach him with a, a respect and a, and a reverence. There's, there's a, we're coming to a holy God, a God of power. Because we might think, well, why can't he just turn a blind eye? I just want him to be my friend. And he is your friend. But he can't turn a blind eye. He's, he needs to deal with your sin. And if you're a believer in Jesus, he has dealt with your sin. And it, it matters because it cost Jesus his life. He died for that. Because we can have, I guess, it's almost like a, it's, it's kind of a bad grace, really. We hear the grace of God and we think that means God's just like our, he's just like our nice our nice uncle. Like I have some nieces and nephews, and I just get to be a nice uncle. I can just feed them sweets, I can teach them rude words, I can drive them crazy, and then leave my brother to deal with it. <laughs> but that's not how I treat my own kids. Actually, I don't treat them, teach them bad words. So I'm not that guy. But I can, you know, I, I, can, I can have all the fun parts of parenting without the responsibility. That's what it means to be an uncle. It's great fun. And we, often we want, we want God to be like that. We just want him to be a nice uncle that we can just come and hang out with and have, have a bit of fun with. But we don't want him to have any authority over us. We don't want to have to feel like we need to respect him. We just, he's just, no, God's just nice. To, he's just good to me. I mean, that's just the sort of God we often want. But also what, what I don't want you to hear is that you know, there can be a kind of a, a good grace and a bad grace, but I don't want you to lead a, you to a place of bad fear. Because there's a good appropriate fear where we believe that we, we come to God with a sense of awe, a sense of his holiness, a sense in our lives of, I just want to follow him. I, I, that's, that's, what it, that's what it means to fear God. But there's an unhealthy fear where we feel like well, I haven't done enough. You know, even when I'm talking about earlier about coming to pray here on a Wednesday, it's not like you arrive and you're 10 minutes late and God's just checking his watch. You know, where have you been? You've not read your Bible this week. 
you've not, you've not, all those things that you did. We can sometimes feel like God's just there watching over us, constantly saying, it's not enough. It's not enough. That's, that's the kind of the echo that we can hear in our heads again and again. And we, we often as Christians, we get caught between these two extremes. On one hand, we want God just to be our nice, cuddly uncle. On the other hand, we, we're, we're terrified because we feel like we haven't done enough. <laughs> and friends, there's a, there's a different way to live that doesn't have to be either of those things. Where we can live a life of a right, pure fear of God that we want to follow him but know his wonderful grace that set us free. And you can live like that. It says in Romans, Romans chapter five, verse, no, not there. Okay, it's not gonna appear, fine. It says in Romans five, verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. A way to paraphrase with that would be, you didn't do anything to get saved. You were God's enemy. Let this eagle swoop down to pick you out and to save you. And it also means that there's nothing we can do to keep us being saved. It says that that we shall be saved by his life, that Jesus is continuing his work of redemption to keep on leading you to him. There's nothing you can do now that means you're gonna somehow lose your salvation. There's nothing you can do that's gonna so disappoint God and let you down that he's just gonna cast you out. He's won you now. You're his possession that he's won to himself. And finally, this third ascent up the mountain, Moses goes up and down again for a third time, and God again tells him to set limits around the mountain and to consecrate it. And as I said at the start, it's not, it's not incidental that this story takes place at the foot of this mountain. This isn't just a freak. It's important because this mountain is a, it's a holy place. It's where God dwells where he reigns, where they see God come with his power. But there's actually another mountain in the Bible that's really important. There's lots of mountains the Bible talks about, but there are two which are really important. There's Mount Sinai, which we've talked about here, where the people of God find themselves camping. But there's also one called Mount Zion, which it talks about in Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. The nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then it goes on in, Hebrews 12 in the New Testament, it, Hebrews is a wonderful book because what it does here is if you're ever struggling with a piece of the Bible, the best way to understand it is to find another piece of the Bible that talks about it. <laughs> Use that to interpret one interprets the other. 
And Hebrews 12, there's this beautiful passage where it talks about Mount Sinai. It talks about what's happening in Exodus 19. It says in Hebrews 12, for you have not come to what may be touched. It's talking about the mountain. A blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. It's talking about what happens at Exodus chapter 19 when they come to this mountain. It it goes on to say, for they could not endure the order that was given. Indeed, it was so terrifying a sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. It doesn't say that. In Exodus 19, it says in Deuteronomy that Moses at Sinai, Moses himself, was trembling with fear. But if you notice there, it said at the start of that passage, you have not come to that. We've not come to that mountain. It's the wonderful good news that God's not led us to Mount Sinai. You, could, you can go there now, and I think is there's, a, there's a Greek Orthodox chapel, and I think there's a, there's a mosque at the top. But you can go there now, and you won't meet God there. He's not there. You, you might go and think, maybe I'll get some transcendental moment, some wonderful, beautiful experience, and it's just a mountain. Because we're not supposed to come to that mountain anymore. It says in Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I don't have time to explain everything what's happening there, but with you get these two mountains contrasted. That On one hand, they come to Sinai and re- they receive this kind of formal legal relationship that God calls them into where he makes his covenant with them. But we come to Mount Zion and we come to this new covenant now. And actually, we don't, need to go to, we don't need to go to Jerusalem, to the temple. We don't need to go and find this Mount Zion place. Where's that? We, we come to Jesus, the mediator. We don't need Moses to go up and down the mountain anymore. You come to Jesus. He's made a way for us. He's dealt with our sin. He's enabled us to have access to the Father. He's made us righteous, holy, perfect. He's sanctified us. He's consecrated us. And we're still called to live holy lives, but all the time we're just catching our lives up with the reality of what God has already done. That now we can come and enter in and we can meet God. We can come here and we can sing songs of worship and expect to encounter Jesus in our hearts because he's alive. He's made a way for us to know him, to meet with him. And we come to this God who's brought about this incredible rescue It says in Deuteronomy 32, he found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. That's exactly how God has saved you and leads you 
by this eagle that's just, it's such a beautiful image of God. Because an eagle is, is, has this kind of furious power. You don't mess with an eagle. It's a predator that's taken out the Egyptians, that's dealt with your sin. But it's also one that comes and rescues and pulls out. You know, eagles have a wonderful calmness about them. You ever seen an eagle or a big bird of prey anyway? They just, they're just in the sky, just circling just a wonderful calmness about them. And our lives, we're always in a hurry. We're always wanting God to move now, now, now. God's not in a hurry. He's already come and he's already come and rescued you. He's brought you and put you in his nest. He's brought you and he's taken you up the mountain. So you can come and meet with God now. And sometimes we feel like we're at the bottom of the mountain staring up. How do I find God? He says, you're already there. This eagle has swooped down and taken you there. Put you with him. Okay, let's pray. Why don't we, the band are going to come and lead us in this song. Why don't you just stand to your feet if you're comfortable to do that. Let me pray. Jesus, we're, God, we, we want to treat you with an appropriate reverence. There's this holy, powerful, awesome God In the C.S. Lewis novels, in the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they're talking about uh, Aslan, the lion. I think it's Lucy or one of the kids asks if the lion is safe. And he says, no, he's, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. Jesus, we, we thank you that you're wonderfully, powerfully, fearfully good. And you do us good. And you've done us good. We can, we can come to you now. That access has been made. That we can come to the Father. Not because of anything we've done. But because you've called us out as your special possession, as your prize. You've rescued us so that we might know you and we might follow you, that we might obey you, not because we have to, but because it's just the best way to live. We pray right now, Holy Spirit, that as we sing songs of worship to you, that you come and speak to our hearts. Pray just come and call out those things in our life that we just need to turn our backs on and say, that's just not holy doing that thing isn't reflecting who I am now I pray you'd help us to turn our backs on those things to follow you Jesus thank you God